So I'm on, uh, Brandon and I went down to Baylor this week. They uh, invited us down to speak at a, a conference they were doing on justice and then uh, to be able to have free reign at all their leadership teams for our intern ministry. So uh, we kind of went down and spent the week there and uh, I was on this airplane and I made, I made the mistake I don't normally make. Um, I'm usually really smart. You sit down, you put the headphones on, you don't even ask somebody their name. The minute you ask somebody their name, you lose control. And, and so I have it down. I'm pretty good at it, but I made a mistake. It was a nice older woman. And she was reading uh, a book on prayer, and I sat down and was, was happy and energetic. And so I, I, I ventured forward with, oh, what are you reading there? Book on, yeah, I'm a pastor. It was all over from then on, right? <laughs> So I, uh, four hours, <clears throat> didn't get to put my headphones on. I held them in my hands and did a couple, like, false starts, you know. And, like, and then I finally was like, if I do it now, it's just going to feel awkward and like I'm offending her. And, and uh, I'll never make that mistake again. But uh, I learned something from this woman. And this, this woman uh, is in her 80s. She was traveling to visit her kids and things like that. She's from Texas. But she said something that just just stopped me dead in my tracks. She was talking about our church and that she and her husband, before he had passed, were a part of helping start a church back in the 70s. And this, this church has is, is grown and it's changed a lot and it's kind of at where it's at. And she's telling me this whole story and she, she just kind of makes this comment. She goes, yeah, I don't even, I don't even know what's going on anymore. I don't, know, I don't know why I'm there. She goes... And I don't know if this is a Texas saying. She goes, I'm just a matchstick. I'm just a matchstick in a fishbowl of matchsticks. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. Like, I don't need to write that down because I'll never forget it. But I just thought the imagery of that was so powerful, right? And so I wrestled with it. You know, Brandon was with me. We talked all week and, and started thinking like, we don't want a church full of matchsticks. We don't want a church where nobody knows who we are, why we exist, where we're going. They don't feel like they have a voice. They don't feel like they have an identity. They feel like they're a commodity in some sense or a number. And we're kind of wrestling with this. And we came down to this realization that people feel like a matchstick when they're not being communicated with. And people aren't communicated with for one of two reasons. First reason people, I believe, aren't communicated with is because they don't have value. They don't have value. Have you ever seen the way certain people will treat waiters or waitresses? You know, it's like there's not a human word in some sense that goes on. It's just barking out orders, you know, because they're there to serve them. And, and there's no sense of dignity or value or worth or even solidarity as people. It's just you're a functional being to serve me, and so there's no communication because there's no value. And the second reason there's no communication is uh, sometimes communication is hard, and it, and it requires a capacity, especially when you're dealing with organizations, it requires a capacity to be able to, on a regular basis, try to engage others in the time and the energy of dialogue and wrestling through ideas, whether it's at a, a large level, whether it's at coffee, whether it's at whatever, and that's just a capacity issue, right? 
And I wrestled and, and kind of prayed a lot about it, and I was just like, we absolutely did not start this church to not value people. It's not, it's not our, our issue. We don't want to do building campaigns because we want to value people. We, we want to we see this thing not as a building that Antioch Church is this building or this corporate entity. We want to see it as a community of people that together are, are kind of leveraging their gifts and there's a synergy going on. One plus one equals three. And together we're able to bless each other more than we would apart but also make a greater impact than we would be able to alone. We want to see it that way. And so I said, so if someone's a matchstick at Antioch, it's not coming from that place. Where would it be coming from? It'd be coming from communication. We're down, we're down a lot of pastors. We're, we're down staff. We've got a lot going on. We're spread thin. And I began to realize maybe there are people at Antioch that just don't, they feel like a matchstick. And it's a, it's probably because we're not communicating or, or maybe because we're not communicating enough with them. And so just started wrestling. What would that look like? And in that, Brandon and I were talking, you know, sometimes we get into the habit of Sunday mornings. It's all about announcements. It's all about kind of what we need people to do or to sign up for because if we don't communicate it, you're not going to sign up for it. And there's a lot of time and energy into putting on something. So we got to announce things and and so that's kind of where we degenerate to sometimes. And we began to realize is what, what gets lost in that is the behind the scenes or the story of what God is doing through Antioch. So kind of this week, just interesting week with moving to a new facility, just this renewed sense of as a church and as a body, a hunger to be in conversation to the degree that everybody feels like they've got a part in this body. There's a role in this body. They're a member of a family, and you're not a matchstick. I mean, I don't know if that, that's a powerful image to you, but it is to me. A matchstick and a bowl of matchsticks. This is, uh, in two weeks, our five-year anniversary is Antioch. Our five-year anniversary. And it's tripping me out. My, my wife this morning was reminding me, like, she always has to, I move really, I keep moving, and so she has to remind me sometimes, Ken, you're doing, you're doing child dedication today. You actually care about that. <laughs> you do. I listened to you for years talk about child dedication and why it matters and why we kind of don't do it the right way. And you, you, it matters, right? Hey, Ken, you're doing baptisms this week. You care about that. You know, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Let me stop. Let me slow down. I so she was kind of doing that to, to me this morning. And... It reminded me of a conversation I had with Rick McKinley when Antioch was one year old and we were coming up on an anniversary and Rick was coming in to teach and so we were out to, to lunch afterwards and we were hanging out and he was, I was kind of like, ah, yeah, we got this anniversary, I really don't want to do anything about it, I don't want to, it's awkward, I don't want to call attention to, to us or to the church or to our successes, it just feels, feels awkward. And Rick kind of laughed at me and and says, yeah, I felt the same way when we were about a year old, two years old. And he goes, and, and it was really stupid of me. I like, really? Okay, well, how's that? And he says, yeah, an older man in my life, a mentor, came to me. And he says, listen, there's two kinds of pride. There's, there's calling attention to yourself. And he says, Rick, so you don't want to do like an anniversary because you feel like in some weird way maybe you're going to call attention to yourself and so you don't, you don't want to do that. And he says, but there's a different form of pride and that's taking away attention from God. 
And he goes, and, and where you're kind of falling down here and not being mature, this is the guy saying to Rick, and then Rick saying to me, was, was you're so caught up in your own self that you don't see that this is a bigger story than you or your staff or your team, and it's God's story, and he deserves the glory. And so Rick kind of tells me, I was like, wow, we're going to always do anniversaries. We're going to always tell the story. This one's a really interesting one for a couple reasons. One, I think in life we need times to just stop and get a touchstone, what in the Old Testament they were called touchstone, which is just simply we, we put something down, a marker that is symbolic of what God is doing or has been doing so that as we move forward, we can reach back and touch that and remember kind of where God has brought us. It's a touchstone. So we always need a marker for those touchstones. And the fact that our five-year anniversary is coming up and we just moved to a new building, this week in some ways is no different than last week. But in a lot of ways it is different, you know. Um, you realize now that you need to leave earlier to find parking. <laughs> and that, that there are coffee Nazis all over the building that you, you cannot walk around this place with coffee anymore. And, and there's a lot of kinks we got to work out. Um, you know, if we pass the offering twice, uh, you can just roll with it. You can tithe again. It's okay. Um, you just, it's a lot different, you know, being in a new facility. So it's just an easy time to kind of put down a marker and say, it's been five years. What's, what's gone on in five years? Second reason why it's cool for me is I, I heard a saying back when I was in grad school, and it stuck with me, and I've used it constantly now for over a decade, and it's this, that you always overestimate what you can do in one year, but you underestimate what you can do in five years, and we're coming up on our five-year anniversary, and so this week, being on a plane, kind of interacting with different things, it all of a sudden hit me. It's kind of that five-year mark that we maybe in some sense underestimated what we could do in that span of time. But now we can look at what we did and started kind of ticking through it in my mind. And it was wild. It was, we, start, we started with a group of three that went to a group of 12 and then was in my living room you know, as about 20 people and meeting that way for summer before we launched. And it's just crazy to see a community grow up out of that in five years. It's crazy. Uh, there's a national-level justice conference that none of us could have seen coming, but as I travel or as I talk to people abroad, it's on the radar of almost everyone I know in that industry or in, in, those, uh, in those sectors. And it's unbelievable to see that people from around the world are, came to Bend and now are going to come to Portland for a, a conference of 3,000 people to talk about a theology of justice and to wrestle with those issues and how that affects our faith. And... This intern program we've got this summer will cross 100 interns. And Brandon's down there in Baylor, and he's talking with seminary students and people that want to come pay five grand to Antioch to cover their expenses to be year-long interns. So this intern ministry that began with Linda when she first came and helped us plant Antioch has now grown into 100 people with year-long components and all this. We've baptized over 100 people. It's amazing to me when you think about it, just in the last several years, how many people have come to have a relationship with God. And I bet if we kind of tried to assess how many people's lives have been changed, it would blow our mind as well. The kids' ministry uh, began in the children's museum that doesn't even exist anymore in the old mill. And it's kind of grown out of that, and it's gone through multiple people's hands, Tish's hands, and, 
and uh, Angie Cole and then Nicole and then Linda now, and it's, it's a small city. But what's underneath it, if you're involved in there, is a philosophy of ministry that sees parents as the primary disciple makers of their kids. And every ounce of her energy is about supporting parents and coming alongside so that your family can thrive spiritually. It's not this kind of weird, give us your kids because we're the experts and we'll train them up for you and hand them back to you, which, which would never work, right? So there's some of these amazing things going on. So I'm ticking all these things off and I tend to think in those categories, but a church is about people and it's about lives and it's about human things. And so on the plane yesterday coming back, I'm getting emails about People in Antioch setting up food, I don't do that, so I don't know how you call it, food things, where a bunch of people bring food every night? Food, somebody. Food what? No, no, that's, that's all at once. I'm talking about like every night food thing. Food train? Meal train? Meals, setting up meals, sounds right. <laughs> but setting up meals for people that, that are in the church, and what you begin to see is that This isn't just a group of people that have come to a church, but there are all these connections in and out and and throughout and people's lives affecting people's lives. And I don't even see half of what goes on and then all of a sudden I'll bump into an email or a person and I'll hear about the body of Antioch loving on people in this church. And you think about Paul writing in Galatians and he says in chapter 6, don't grow weary in doing good, but as you have uh, opportunity... um, do good to all people, especially the body of believers. There's this real sense in which there should be a solidarity and an intimacy in the body where we help each other and, and bend that way. So it's just as a five-year anniversary, it's amazing for me to wrestle with the idea of what God has been doing and continues to do through this church. So here's the, if you want to turn with me real quick, Ephesians 5, or Ephesians chapter 3, sorry. This was kind of the theme verse when Antioch first started. This was the theme verse when Antioch first started. It's probably familiar to many of you, but in chapter 3 and verse 20, you see the tail end of a prayer of Paul's. Ephesians 3 verse 20, and, and on the tail end of this prayer, he kind of he kind of states this theology or just puts it forward, and he says, now to him, to God, now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us. To Him be the glory, get this, in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When we started the church, that was our theme verse, and the emphasis the emphasis, uh, probably because of our personalities and what we were trying to embark on, the emphasis was God can do more than all we ask or imagine, which sounds really cool because this is a really big undertaking. We're really scared. We don't have any money, and um, it's really hard. So let's just throw it on God. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't that, but I mean, it's that idea of like we can rest in the fact that all of our big dreams, all that we can imagine, all that we can ask of God, that if we, if we try to push that bar as high as we can, that that's still less than what God can do. 
that it's God who has the strength. It's, it's God that speaks things into existence. It's God that animates. And his power can do more than what we can hope for, what we can dream for, what we can ask for. And so in some ways, the five-year marker is, what has God done that's beyond what we thought was possible? And if we can look around and see that God has been at work or, or has been doing something that is amazing or beyond what we think or, or what we thought was possible, then he gets the glory. So the emphasis for me now has come to be the second half of this verse in chapter 3, 21. According to his power that is at work within us and to him be the glory in the church. Whatever is good about Antioch, whatever is good about Antioch, is to the glory of God. Whatever is bad about Antioch, I swear, is Justin's fault. But the good belongs to God. You know, when we come on a Sunday morning, I was just out there commiserating with a friend of mine, and and, uh, I shouldn't say this, but it's, it's, it's a new thing in my life. It's called the Nobody Taught Me About Middle Aged Family Man Commiserating. So, you know, his back is bad, you know, my stomach's a mess, and so, you know, he's in bed all last night tossing turn for his back. You know, I'm up at four in the morning going, really, God? You know, and, and so we're like trading stories, and there's, there's, if you're a middle-aged family man, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I'm comforting you right now. This is me comforting you. Pastoral care is my strength. Um, and we're out there, and, and there's just something good about God's people being with God's people. There's something good about God's people being with God's people, and it's, it's not about entertainment. It's not about a theater. It's not about glamour or anything else. It's about a commitment that extends through time where God's people are with God's people, and we need that. We need it. And whatever good happens that way God gets the glory from that. And I've been taught by some of my friends. Last week, Kevin Butcher was here at Underwood uh, down in California. Many of you know, preaches here a lot. They've sharpened the point for me that it is not our responsibility to grow a church. We've gotten this messed up, by the way, in America. It's all the business techniques, and it's all the great leadership things, and it's all... Our role, our job, our smarts that grows churches. And we, we spend so much time and energy on that, trying to grow the church, that we miss the fact that, the, that this isn't our responsibility, but there's something else that we're taking time away from that is our responsibility. And, and here's how it goes. God grows churches. Jesus said to Peter, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I'll build it. It's my church. And then... Later, we see Paul kind of talking, and he's like, man, you guys get this church thing all messed up. Here's the deal. I planted this other dude, Apollos, watered, but, but we're kind of nothing. It's God who makes it grow. He was working through us. We're a part of the process, but ultimately, he's the one that makes it grow, and he gets the glory. So what is our role? Our role is to love each other. If we start turning through the pages of the New Testament, there's all these phrases of one another, one another. And one another is the other right next to you on the left or right next to you on the right, but one another. We have all these kind of things that we're supposed to do for one another. So there's this 
ongoing dynamic relationship where we're interdependent and interconnected and we build each other up in love and that's, that's our responsibility. From a leadership standpoint, it says in Ephesians 4 that our responsibility is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, I know a lot of you and you, you aren't saints. I'm talking to the person behind you. Just kidding. Um, I was looking at my friend Guy Gleason here when I was saying that because he would get the joke, you know. And by the way, if, you, if you've never been to an Antioch service when Guy's doing announcements, it's still some of my best memories of Antioch. Anyone, anyone remember that? When Guy Gleason? I still church at its best when Guy Gleason's doing announcements. Um, it's our job as leaders to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. What does that mean? It means that I, I let God grow the church and, and I put my energy into discipleship. That the leaders were looking at each other and saying, how do we nurture, how do we encourage, how do we help you find your calling and then help you refine your ability to live out that calling and then even maybe do things that you can't do for yourself, open certain doors that you might not be able to open so that we all are able to kind of be on this mission for God doing what he has gifted us to do and called us to do and we help each other. So it's our job to disciple and to do the work of ministry, but it's God's job to grow the church. And so when something is healthy or it grows, like when you walk into the garden, you can say, yeah, I'm in the gardening group and so-and-so gets the credit. They taught me about this. But at the end of the day, it's like, nah, they know, they know really well, they're really wise at the principles that God laid down about growing things. You know what I'm saying? Like they're, they're working, but it's God who designed this thing and is making it grow. Unless you're in Portland and then God doesn't send the sun and then it doesn't go. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2 for me. So we're five years in. There's a lot of cool things. I, want, I really, really, really want to make sure we start talking about those things more because there's a lot to celebrate. But I want to show you the ideal of church. Everyone knows it. I think for 2,000 years this passage has been read as the pinnacle of what church would look like if it's in its ideal form. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. I have no idea what that marker went to, but I have a feeling I'm going to be looking for it. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says, They, that means the, the followers of Christ, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe. They were excited. It was palpable. There was energy there. They, they were all anticipating good things coming. And it was, you know what I'm talking about? It's when your football team starts doing good. And for 10 years, you haven't seen a game. I went to Clemson. The last time Clemson won the ACC, anyone know? Long time ago. You just called me old because it was my freshman year of college, 91. It's one of the reasons I went to Clemson. They had a top 25 team for my first semester. It's the last time they won the ACC was in 91. They're 5-0, and and they're going to probably cra- uh, crack the top 10 this week. You know, I, if, you, if you were on the plane with me yesterday, I paid for the Internet, and I was like on ESPN, and I kept hitting the refresh button, 
And I was, I've never done this. I was watching the play-by-play as they were playing Virginia Tech. If you would have thought, I'm a, I'm a die-hard Clemson fan. And to you, I am. But the truth is, for the last 10 years, I haven't seen a game, right? I live on the West Coast. They don't show games of teams that, are, that, that suck on the East Coast. It's just... <laughs> But when something starts going good, you know what I'm talking about? It sucks you in. There's a center of gravity. It just pulls you, you, the bandwagon effect. And, and there's this sense of like anticipation. How cool is it when a church is so dynamic and there's things going on and God's working to such a degree that people are like excited about church the way they are about a contending football team? You know, where guys are all of a sudden coming back to church. You know there's miracles going on, right? So all the believers, uh, all the people were filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles and all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They were loving on each other and they were selling possessions and goods and they gave to anyone as they had need. They were not being selfish. They were being selfless. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. That's kind of the small groups. They would meet at the temple courts and there was thousands of them. See, it's a false dichotomy to say that small churches are good and big churches are bad. Size has nothing to do with health. There are healthy big churches and unhealthy big churches and there are healthy small churches and unhealthy small churches. The church in Jerusalem was thousands and they would meet at the temple steps, and they would have teach, But then they would go home together in small groups and eat and hang out and share life together. Just kind of like what we're doing today and trying to pull people into those groups. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When it is so dynamic... This is my view of evangelism, by the way. I'm not a big, like, run out, beat somebody over the head with my Bible, and, and try and, like, you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying by that. My view of evangelism is, if, it, if I bring my kids to a park where the, the slide and, and the swings and all that are so, you know the, the senior center? Like the park there? Anyone with kids knows what I'm talking about. The rest of you are like, senior center? If you go to a park that is so amazing, you don't have to get kids excited about it. If a church can be the body of Christ and be dynamic and there's energy and there's a center of gravity, there are people on the edge who are hurting, who are needy, who have doubts, who are hungry. And it's almost like you don't need to get them excited about church. They're drawn to it. That's the whole idea of a city on a hill or, or be the light. It's something that, that draws people in. That's my view of evangelism, that church would be so cool. Not cool like in a fashionable way, but cool as in a, there's nothing I'd rather be a part of, right? It's, it's transformative, and I'm in awe, and then people get folded into it, and that's what's going on here in Acts. People are showing up each week. So when I... Became a Christian, I, I read this, and I just was like, that's what I want. I want that. It's the ideal. You can't read that. You can't hear about it without going, man, there's something in me that resonates with that. I was coming out of a fraternity, and 
if, if you were in a fraternity or sorority, maybe you were in a better one than I was, but fraternity or sorority, it's hilarious because you pledge and there's all the ideals, right? Secret handshakes and brotherhood and, and all I learned was paddling and, you know, and gossip and factions and, you know, and, and I remember after several years, like, I'm, I'm in the fraternity, I'm years in, I've got a lot of good friends, I'm established, and then you get a new set of kids coming in for rush week and this might feel I think fraternities are on their way out so this might be like what are you talking about but rush week is like tryouts for a social club the whole thing sounds weird right but it's like tryouts and you got these people coming through and you begin listening to what people are saying and people are saying all these things about how idealistic it is and how dreamy it is brotherhood and you're just like uh, I know that's not true I know it's not true. And I was kind of disillusioned by it. And when I, when I became a Christian, I was like, you know what? That's why it was like that. Now I'm going to go to a Christian group and it's going to be so different because this was not a Christian thing. This, so maybe this will be different. So I'll go to a Christian group. <laughs> it was no different. It was like, I was like, it's just a fraternity for people not cool enough to get into a fraternity. That's what the Christian group is. <laughs> and... And I was so disillusioned by it. And so I began to just hunger for where is going to be an expression that tries to reach for the ideal of what Christian community ought to be when the Holy Spirit's in the middle of it, animating and making people grow. And where people aren't being selfish, they're turning it around and trying to be selfless. Where is that? So I began a quest of, and I, I felt called to plant a church really early on. I felt called to plant a church in 97 Antioch planted at the end of 2006. I waited almost 10 years. I was really, really determined that I wasn't going to just jump because I was frustrated with the institutional church. I wasn't just going to pull my own number and run out onto the field. I was going to submit myself underneath elder boards and other pastors until they laid hands on me and sent me out. And so it took almost 10 years. So I was 34 when we planted, and the average age of a planter is 25. And I was kind of like, geez, God. I don't have time to build this thing. I'm 34. I'm almost irrelevant. <laughs> I don't have a cool haircut. You know, I don't have a whatever. I don't even have any hair. And, and it's funny. I look now and it's been five years. You want to know the, the biggest thing God taught me? I don't care how old you are, Ken. You follow me. You do what I say to do, when I say to do it. You let me go before you and do what I'm going to do. You know, I bet Moses was out in the desert at age 80 going, yeah, once upon a time I was supposed to set my people free. <laughs> I, I couldn't win a fight with a nun now. <laughs> How am I supposed to be a liberator? It's not, it, it's not about us, right? So anyways, there was a sidetrack, but since 97, felt called to plant a church, and I obsess about the ideals of Christian community. When my, wife, when my wife married, when we got married, we used to talk about this a lot. And I said, Tamara, I want to find friends that we make decisions based on the friendship. We pass up jobs because it would require us to leave and uproot. And we're not going to do that. Like, I, I want a fidelity to a community because we realize community is important and we have this, the depth of relationship. I, I want to find those people. By the way, I found that with a lot of people. 
me and Kip back in the back. I was with Brandon this week, and you want to know the coolest thing about Brandon? It's everything. everything. The dude m- melded a church, and some of you might have been from it, melded a church he'd been pastoring called River Rock into Antioch when Antioch was six months old. He looked over and says, hey, look, we're pursuing the same vision, uh, so we should really just meld in together and, and, and throw our lots in together and fight hard at this uh, because it's about the vision. It's about what God's doing. It's not about teams and factions and competition and all that. So he led his group into this, and, and we haven't had one moment of, of sideways friction relationally the whole time I've known Brandon. The guy is as pure-hearted for ministry as it gets. I'd take a bullet for, for him. I want him there at my bed someday in a hospital if I'm dying. And I want Kip there. And Kip's sister, Kim, is in Sacramento. But I, I want her. I want community that invests into community at such a deep level that we can have this kind of dynamic thing. I've, I've forgot to talk about it for a couple years now, but it's interesting. We had some interns at our table, not interns, former interns, Jared and Marianne and Grace and a couple others at our, our dinner table the other day, and Tam and I were talking about this, and we were looking at them, and they came and they interned, and then they went and graduated, and then they moved back for what? For community and to be where God is at work and doing things. And I'm looking at them, and I'm like, man, my friends have got kids, and we got these middle-aged, like, family guy syndrome things, and, like, we have all these constraints, but you guys have so much potential. You have so much potential to, to reach 20-year-olds and bend and to kind of find them and, and call them to a higher ideal, this community, this idea of what it can be. And, and it's just so exciting to me to see them get passionate about that. But this is the ideal. Now, what's the problem with any ideal? What's the problem with any ideal? Is that we don't live in an idealistic world. We live in a messy world where nine-tenths of the time it's real and one-tenth of the time it's ideal, right? So what I've found is uh, we always, usually the church in America, we typically fail in comparison against Acts chapter 2. Everywhere I go, we have the ideal, and we kind of look around like, eh, you guys, I wish I was in an Acts, uh, Acts chapter 2 church. If only I could find this Acts chapter 2 church. You guys, not so much. You know, like, we have this ideal, and there's these comparisons, and I know what comparisons feel like. I've, I've suffered them my whole life. I'm not ideal. Like, my mom kept a book of me my whole life and showed it to me a bunch of years ago, and it's like my second grade teacher, letter home to the parents, can you please tell Ken he's not the teacher? You know, third grade, can you please tell Ken he's not the leader? Of the, you know, fourth grade, can you please go over the rules with Ken he doesn't seem to understand? And then it was like junior high, and it was being compared to my sister. My sister got straight A's. She's really smart. She's a lawyer. And straight A's to me always meant somebody that's making the foolish mistake of putting way too much time into to academics. <laughs> it was a symbol for a bad decision, and I'm way too logical for that. But I was always failing by comparison. I mean, everything, everything in my life, I was usually fa- failing to some ideal. Um, what, I, you know, anyways. I want you to turn, if you're still in Acts chapter 2, I want you to turn over just a page. 
to chapter 6 in Acts. Same church, same town. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, so in the middle of all this pow, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The Greek-speaking people were being segmented out and, and treated as second-class citizens to the Hebraic, more pure Jews from that region. And this is a justice issue, by the way. So the, the Acts 2 picture of, of justice and social justice, it's all working. All of a sudden you go, it's not, it's not all ideal. In this same church, there are a lot of people making a distinction of worth and dignity for people that are one step removed from, from the center of the circle. And in that, they're actually overlooking the widows and giving them less than these widows over here. See, Acts chapter 2 is an ideal, but an, an ideal is just that. There's no church that's perfect, even the one that was in Acts chapter 2. And what I've begun to realize with church is this. When you talk about missions and global relief and ending world poverty, the mistake we always make is this, that, that we can just erase everything bad in the world and make it all perfect from that mo uh, moment forward. And then you get in and you begin to find that a lot of these issues are intractable. Poverty, in a lot of ways, is intractable. It's hard to really gain traction on it. You get disillusioned and you're like, man, I'm never going to fix that. And so you kind of walk away. But in that whole process, you make a distinction. We should make a distinction and begin to realize just because we can't fix the world doesn't mean we can't change the world. Just because we can't fix the world doesn't mean we can't change the world. So as messy as it is, you wade into the mess. That orphan that you helped, that widow that you helped, that ray of light that you brought, whatever it is, see, it's something, even if it doesn't fix everything. The problem we need to address with church is this. There is no perfect church. There never has been a perfect church. Just because there can't be a perfect church, just like there can't be a perfect family, and just like there can't be a perfect person, just because there can't be a perfect church doesn't mean there can't be a healthy church. The goal isn't for us to have this unrealistic ideal for this community to be perfect. It's to go, you know what? It's filled with a bunch of messy people. And in all of that, if we try and if we learn to have grace with each other and forgive each other, we can be healthy and in that health, we can make a difference. And we can be dynamic, and we can be inspiring, and people will want to come because I think people don't want perfect. They want real. They want authentic. And they want health. If you turn to Acts 13, we'll, we'll kind of continue this same story. Actually, just do Acts 11. We'll do Acts 11 instead. Ah, forget Acts 11. Go to Acts 13. <laughs> Somebody must have taken too much time before me. Acts chapter 13, you see something fascinating. We begin reading this. In the church at Antioch, 
there were prophets and teachers, and Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who many had brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. What church in America would go to prayer one night and then come out the next morning and say, we're going to take our senior pastor and our senior associate pastor and just send them off? It's a really bad church growth strategy. But it's a very good mission strategy. And so the name Antioch, we took it really in, in off of this church in Antioch. I, I actually, is it on the map, Kip? Did you bring that slide? It's right up above the power line there, just to the left of... I, th- I thought we had a slide of a kind of ancient Israel map. Maybe not. But it was on the trade routes, kind of up north, and so... And it was removed from Jerusalem a little bit. And so it kind of was doing things different and asking some different questions. And there's a spirit-ledness to this whole thing. They're, they're kind of saying, God, what do you want from us? And then in it, they take and they set aside these two key leaders. And the model we took from that when we started Antioch is we want to take the best of what God gives us and be willing to give it away. I struggle with that. Church planters have come to town at the beginning and then even in the last couple of years, and I'm like, man, another church planter, uh, are they gonna, is it going to take people away from Antioch? Because, I mean, we, we need people, and there's things that need covering. All. And the minute I feel that tension, in the past what I've done, tried to do, is put somebody up and say, look, have at, have at it. Here's our people. Go for it. If any of them want to leave, we want to send them. And so there's a church in Redmond that... that started with 20 of our people or 20 of our people went when it started there's other churches where we let them have at it with their vision even ones here in bend and it's a purifying thing to say it's not about us this this isn't a competition it's god's church and and we're a community and we want to hold things with open hands and let god lead and direct even if it means leading people away and purify our motives that way you know those people that went to redmond nobody can ever take that away from us It's in the history annals. We did that. It's there. It's true. It's real. No one can ever take it away from us. If Antioch were to die, if this were to all go away and we were to die, the fact that when we had the opportunity, we still let somebody pitch their vision and our people went, which which, which just didn't feel very good to the selfish self, right? No one can take that from us. So we want to take the best of what God gives us and give it away and... and, uh, we have the map. This is a blinking light. It's a little late, but there it is. It's, ah, there's Antioch in all its glory. And uh, I, let me just tell you something. We're, we're gonna. We kind of started Antioch with not wanting a mission statement, not wanting to put all these great five, ten-year goals, not wanting to like say, God, we got it all mapped up, ma- mapped out, so you can't change the plan now, because we'd lose credibility. You can't, you can't lead, God, because we've got to stick to the plan because we told the people the plan, and if we don't do the plan, they're not going to trust us. So we, we purposely tried to pull back and just say, we're going we're to walk by faith. It's God's people group. Like in the Old Testament, there's a pillar of fire and a cloud, and you kind of wonder, where are we going? We're going in circles. This doesn't make sense. 
Our wives are saying to us, do you, do you, you, know, do you need us to pull out the map? God, where are you leading? But we're going to walk by faith. And so just recently, though, we felt like the size of the church and everything else, we needed something to center ourselves on, a mission. Like, this is what we're about. And so we kind of went through this process, and, and the mission statement was, is to love God and love others. I decided last night that's not going to be the mission statement. The elders don't know this. Um, it's, it's true, but it's, it's crap. I'm serious. It's one of those sayings that we as Christians have so put, put pixie dust all over or, or whatever that it no longer ties back to what it meant when it first was derived. You see, there's concepts and then there's words that now serve as a placeholder for the concept. But then there's some words that after you play with them or phrases after you play with them so much, you become so familiar with them that your mind never goes beyond the word to the concept. And love God, love others is this great little nice and churchy thing. But I think we hear it and we're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's... But we don't really go beyond it and say, what's going on here? What's the mission? So I gave a, a mission statement to the elders. Like, I, didn't, I didn't call it a mission statement, but a year ago we were looking at what's, what's going on? What's God doing at Antioch? And this is what I said. I said, Antioch is becoming or, or has or is, and what we're seeking for as staff is to be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon and to have a shaping voice in global Christianity. That's been mine all along. I, didn't, we, we didn't, we, I wasn't going to use that because it sounds, you're like, well, why do we care about global Christianity? What does that have to do with anything? But that's the truth. Where, where God's been leading us, where he's been leading me, where he's been leading the staff is, at, if nothing else, we're going to be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon. And we're going to be not involved in just turning it back on ourselves and being a great Christian club that's selfish and begins to overlook the Grecian Jews. But we're going to get beyond ourselves and, and leverage our shared collective influence and say, what kind of a dent can we make in this world from little old Bend, Oregon? See, this is the great conspiracy for me. It's actually kind of fun. My competitive side comes out here. You know, Jesus was rolling around and everyone was like, what, what comes from Nazareth? What comes from Galilee? Like nothing comes from Nazareth or Galilee. It's a little podunk, bad economy, whatever. If it's good, it comes from Jerusalem. Everything good comes from Orange County. That's where Christianity is born. <laughs> that's where you can go to Disney Church, you know, and, and that's where the money is and that's where the depression isn't bad and there's billions of dollars at the disposal and you can get a golf cart in the parking lot to take you to the front door and I, the great subversive thing for me here is God is using little old Antioch and little old Ben to do an amazing work that's beginning to grow beyond kind of our wildest expectations. I'm, exci I, I'm excited about that. I want to see where it can go. There's a friend of mine that we were, two years ago, we were like, let's make it our goal to keep Antioch as small as we can keep it but to have as big of an impact in the world as we can possibly do, wouldn't it be neat to someday put that forward and say, there's only one person that gets the glory from this? 
Brandon Reynolds. <laughs> right here. No, seriously though. If it doesn't add up on a human level, then the amplification or the math has to be affected by what? The Holy Spirit that animates and quickens and breathes life into the things that God created, the church He created, the institutions He created, Antioch, which I believe He created. So maybe the elders will overrule me and they'll go back to love God, love others. You'll see me make faces if, if we do. But for me, look, I'm just being honest with you. This is, this is the vision. This is the mission. This is what I feel like we can rally around is just to be real. It's a community. It's relational. It's messy. It's not perfect, but it's healthy. To be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon, and to have a shaping voice in global Christianity. I'm willing to give another five years to that. I'm willing to probably give more to that. If you would, go ahead and stand up. I'm just going to, as a closing prayer, read out of Ephesians one more time. So I'm reading Paul here in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Let this kind of be a benediction. The, the band's going to come up and, and we're going to take the offering and they're going to play. But for now, just as we stand here, let me read this kind of as a benediction or a prayer. If you close your eyes and, and let this be our prayer. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within all of us here today, to him be the glory in the church and in this church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. you may be seated.